Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honorverse fans. Welcome to our next rather exciting whole lot and lots of boom if you're an old Babylon 5 fan um, episode of Honorverse Today. This is Raul Wybera, and I am joined by my good friends J.P. Harvey and Jim Arrowwood. How are you gentlemen tonight? Doing real well. Same here. Oh, same here too. Um, for some people, this is the 11th of 14 books. In reality, we are not quite about halfway through the series. Can't believe we are that far, but we are at the climax of the Havenite War, right in the middle of a binge read that started with Crown of Slaves and ends with Mission of Honor. In other words, this is where Honor would have died in the original arc, the book at all costs. Fortunately, that doesn't happen. And I believe is it either this book, I think this book has the appendix that explains the, uh, has the afterword that discusses that, or is it the next book? The next book has a foreword that, it, that recaps that. It has the foreword that recaps the, yeah, good. Yeah. You folks, yeah. when we get to the next book, you probably do want to read that because you'll find it very, very interesting. But for at all costs. I'm going to immediately pass this over to Jim because this is a massive book. We'll probably have a lot to talk about and he can give <laughs> us a summary to get us grounded. Yeah, I will give it my best. So the war with the Republic of Haven has resumed disastrously for the star kingdom of Manticore. Admiral Lady Dame Honor Harrington, Steadholder and Duchess Harrington, the single victorious Allied commander of the opening phase of the new war has been recalled from the Sidemore system to command 8th Fleet. Everyone knows 8th Fleet is the Alliance's primary offensive command, which makes it the natural assignment for the woman the media calls the Salamander. But what most of the public doesn't know is that not only are the Star Kingdom and its allies badly outnumbered by the Republic's new fleet, but that the odds are going to get steadily worse. Eighth Fleet's job is to somehow prevent those odds from crushing the Alliance before the Star Kingdom can regain its strategic balance. It's a job which won't be done cheaply. Honor Harrington must meet her formidable responsibilities with inferior forces even as she copes with the tumultuous changes in her personal and public life. The alternative to victory is total defeat. Yet this time, the cost of victory will be agonizingly high. Well, there it is. There it is. Yep. That actually, a lot of times, I'm not always a fan of cover notes because they can be rather misleading. This one is right on track. Without spoiling anything. Yes. So, JP, any notes and comments on the book? Yeah. 
Well, as you mentioned, this is the 11th book in what we loosely refer to as the main series. If somebody was only paying attention to that and they like what we're doing, that leaves us with three more in that line, and you might be sad. But Raul, as you mentioned, we're really about halfway through the content when read as it was published, so there is a lot more to come in the Honorverse. So we are accounting for the the parallel or sidequill series that are out there, plus the anthologies. So there is a lot of content left. Events in At All Costs take place approximately 1920 to 1921 PD, meaning that part of this story overlaps with the previous book we discussed, and, and that was The Shadow of Saginami. So this is going to fold in well with, with things that we saw there. It's 855 pages, as it was originally published, written, of course, by David Weber and published by Ban, and that happened in October of 2005. Not necessarily unusual for Mr. Weber to do, but there are a lot of historic references in this book, including a reference to Harper's Ferry, Potawatomi Creek, Clausewitz makes an appearance, an admiral named William Halsey, and another admiral named Raphael Sims. And uh, we can talk some detail about those guys now, or we can bring them up when we talk places and people and things. Oh, Let's say gosh. you, Raul. I am almost tempted to say, let's go ahead and wait till we get to the people and places. Yeah. So we have a little bit of context. So we, we have a little bit of context around it. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the Halsey Sims reference, though, is what was great. So that's the, uh, that's the special notes. We'll, ju- we'll dive into the overall impressions, and then we can get into some characters and places and things like that. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those things that I mentioned. So, uh, Jim, you want to start us off on overall impressions? Sure. So this was an incredibly long book. Amazingly great story. Uh, there isn't anything in this book that put me off. Uh, it is a work of literary genius as far as I'm concerned. It hooked me right from the beginning and held me all the way through to the end. Uh, it ran the full gauntlet of emotional content from the depths of despair to the heights of triumph. Uh, thus far, this might be my favorite. Um, I know I've said that before, but how David just keeps <laughs> raising the bar after the 17 books we've read is beyond my imagination. And uh, we have a lot of books to go, you know, wow. So what do you think, JP? You know, when he, when he connects these stories so tightly, that this could be my apology for the multiple favorites or a, a large favorites bucket. The, these aren't separate stories. They run together. So it's very easy to go, this is my favorite. And you realize it led right into another, just more of the story. It continues. And so there we are having two favorites and pretty soon it's four. But yeah, it was, uh, it was an awesome book for me. Like, Shadow of Saganami, it took me quite a bit of time to get through this, but it wasn't because it was slow or boring or anything like that. It was fantastic. And one more book, to use a phrase that I used when we talked about Shadow of Saganami, this is one more book that was full of meat rather than milk in terms of the breadth and depth of the story and what Weber was telling us through the story. And by the way, there are some epic naval battles 
And Raul, you mentioned right up front for the the B5 fans, there's a lot of boom in this book. Yep. How about you, Raul? And by the way, I don't mind mentioning the B5 fans fandom because uh, quite frankly, uh, I I talk about our podcast and Honor Harrington in general on Reddit. And sometimes I think the Babylon 5 subreddit is even more active talking about Honor Harrington than uh, (laughs) some of the Honor Harrington. uh, Interesting. The B5 fans, for easy to understand reading reasons, have a lot of fondness uh, for this series. Uh, however, this isn't the Babylon Project podcast. This is Honorverse Today. And so talking about uh, at all costs, all I can say is the book is a roller coaster ride, and there's no other way to describe it. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll cheer out loud. And there, e- even on... Ha- Having done a few rereads, there's a few spots where it's like, you know, oh, I forgot about yeah parts to it. All of the story elements of the last three books and each of the three arcs all played an important role here. People you know and care about from early in the series on both sides die. There are amazing battles. You've got a meaningful advancement of both the front and the back plot. It's thick with tech geekery as well as real character development uh the book's got it all yeah oh oh and we finally see the real bad guy behind everything revealed probably a tree cat (laughs) (laughs) send in the clones let's go ahead and segue straight into uh our list of characters that need to be mentioned uh as well some uh places and things i'm gonna say again the 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 cast of characters in this story is massive absolutely massive there is no way i can cover every important character in the in the book so i am simply picking out the ones that uh stood out the most for me and invite any sort of comment uh regarding them uh, obviously, we have a lot of Honor Harrington in this book, but not as much as you might think because of the way the saga has spread out across the uh, universe here. I suppose I off- also have to mention Hamish Alexander and Emily Alexander. Or with regards to those three, should I now say uh, Alexander Harrington? Yeah. Yep. Now, you probably should have seen what's coming, and you know, when we get to the story, you probably should have seen what's coming uh, way back when Honor dashed off to Silesia because she was feeling cornered and needed to get away from Hamish. Yeah. This, for me, these two in the Hamish, Alexander, Harrington, and so forth and so on, was one of the big surprises to me in this book. Okay. And was it a good surprise? Or, oh, or? yeah. Yeah. I thought it was an interesting solution because, okay, I don't remember when, but I found out somehow that uh, Hamish and Honor were going to be married. Okay. So all this time that I've been reading these books, I've been, I wondered how is, how are they going to do away with Emily? Okay. She's a Grayson. Honor is, that is. Yeah. Well, see and And a Beowulf. Well that didn't make that didn't connect with me. 
Ah. So the surprise wasn't that they got married. The surprise was is they uh their the relationship. And I just yeah. after I read that I just laughed. I I just cracked up, you know. <laughs> so uh, uh, yeah, definitely a, pr- a pleasant surprise. And this book is full of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously we have to mention Nimitz and Samantha. Yeah. And we keep seeing more, especially of Nimitz, uh, the, the conversations that they're, that the tree cats are having is let, let's just say the, the, the tree cats are coming out of the little closet. They've been hiding their intelligence in, uh, their conversations are, they're, they're speaking up more and more. Allison Shoe Harrington, I, I, you know, uh, probably could call it Benton Ichu. So it turns out she's from a bit more of a prominent background than uh, she lets the Manticorn people believe, huh? Yeah. Uh, what we're going to, uh, well, we're going to find out a little more about that actually as we go forward. But so she's she's literally from one of the most prominent families in uh, Beowulf. Elizabeth Winton, we can't uh, ignore Queen Elizabeth at this point. Um, boy, she does have a temper, doesn't she? Yeah, it shows more here in this part of the story than it has in the past. With some very serious ramifications. Yeah. And shows out the ability to be manipulated uh, Willie, William Alexander, Hamish's brother, continues to be a presence. He seems to be shaping up a pretty darn good prime minister, actually. I, I do have to mention Dr. Alescu. Wouldn't you really... They, they talk about there's a history between him and the Harringtons, Honor's parents. Wouldn't you really like to know this backstory? Hmm. It, it yeah. definitely gives you the sense that something's there. Hmm, maybe. So are you saying we're going to find out one day? Maybe. Uh, depends on what books you read. Well, we're reading them all. Well, then you will. <laughs> hopefully, that'll. Hopefully, this will get uh, some of our uh, listeners to read. Dur, quit playing. Quit, quit playing crap. Just <laughs> yes, we're going to hear more about this guy. I gotta have some fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I now I do have to spank uh, Mr. Weber here uh, on the next character, Raul Alexander Harrington, uh, David. You misspelled the name. Raul <laughs> should be spelled R A U L. Oh, for Christ's <laughs> Get it right, dude. Uh, and his sister, uh, Catherine Alexander Harrington. So both Emily and Honor actually have a baby, and we've got an official heir to the throne. Yeah. Um, or to the yeah, stead holdership. To the. The title, the, uh-huh. the st- yeah, the uh, not just the steadhold, well, the uh, duchy is that the right phrase? Mm. The duchy, yeah. There's an error. The we know is there is the, an uh, error. Steadholdership, though. Yes, yeah. also the steadholdership. That's right. And the billions and trillions of dollars that honor has amassed over the past eighteen books. Andrew Lafollette. Oh God, that was sad. Sad in a good way. And then we have some sad in a not so good way. Uh, Simon Mattingly and Timothy Mears, yeah, both involved in the different aspects of the assassination attempt on honor. Mm-hmm. That was heartbreaking. Uh, Michelle Henke, 
ha- is back and prominent. Mike, Mike. Uh, everyone's Mike. favorite best friend. Mike. Everyone's Mike. favorite BFF, and we're going to be seeing. A, she's got an important role here, and we are going to call her what Jim said, Mike. Oh yeah. Yep. I, it is so. Gl- it, it's good to see her back. We're going to be seeing a whole lot more of her. She really comes into her own starting in this book. Yeah. Uh, Scotty and Harkness are still around. It's good to see them back. And I really like the, uh, I've, I've got them listed for a reason. They're, they're in one of my quotes, but the, the perspective they give. And then there's the really heartbreaking crush. And, and it, it just crushed me. Oh, yeah. Alistair McKeon. Oh, but that's sort of the alternative to sparing honor. Mm, mm-hmm. But that that broke me up. And then we've got the rest of Honor's officer corps that at least, thank God, survived, uh, including Michael Overstegen, Alice Truman, uh, Admiral Yanikov is back, Mercedes Brigham is back. Uh, it was great seeing all of those come back again. James Webster, someone we didn't see a lot of, but the bits that you did see we liked. And of course, his... What was it? His nephew, I think, was one is one of Honor's part of Honor's officer corps, but assassinated. Barry Zawicki, our trusting little mouse queen, gets a very harsh lesson in reality. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, she survived. Unfortunately, one of her her best friends, uh, Lara, another character that you came to really really like, didn't. And she gave her life out of love and duty, basically, to save not just Barry, but uh, potentially thousands of others. Yeah. Admirals uh, Dorval and Kuzak, casualties of war, more people who lost their lives. This almost was going to be one of my favorite plot points. I br- and I, So I had that Clink Scales, Howard Clink Scales family listed. Uh, Howard finally passed away. Yeah, if you can talk about that without getting... Uh... Sweaty eyeballs, then good for you. No, no. And uh, the, 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 one of the reasons this almost became one of my uh, plot points was it really hits you hard, the prolonged versus uh, not prolonged so- mm-hmm. you know, aspects of society as a society shifts into that. From there, let's go to, sadly, P- uh, the other group of people that I consider good guys in, in the story, even though... They and the Manticorans are trying to kill each other. From Haven, Eloise Pritchard, who is really the first one to realize the degree of manipulation going on. You, you can't help but like her more and more. Yeah. Uh, the same with Thomas Tiesman. It's like their, their approach is if we're going to be stuck in a war, we need to, you know, and, and they're not trying, they're, they're trying to put an end to it and into the violence in the best or only ways available to them. And sometimes sometimes that means you have to get that uh, that crushing victory as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. It, it, that's the that's the theory on this. Another sad part for me and actually it was sad for honor too was losing Javier Giscard. He he didn't survive the battle of Lovet. Lester Torville, uh David, thank you for not killing my favorite space cowboy. <laughs> And then we get the slimies on uh, the Haven Knight side, Arnold Giancola and Ives Grossclaw. Those are two deaths that I didn't object to, though 
in Giancola's case, it being an honest-to-gosh accident, it's a little inconvenient. And the bad guys unmasked, Aldona Anisimovna and Isabel Bartasano are back from earlier books. Yeah. And we're going to continue to see a lot more of them. And then we have Albrecht Detweiler. Any thoughts, gentlemen? I don't want to say too much about him yet because this is a name we have to keep a watch for. And I should have mentioned these guys earlier, uh, but in a way they kind of belong here. Anton Zilwicki and Victor Kasha. Yeah. Oh, and they've been running through the story now, coming a little bit into the forefront, then kind of disappearing again. And they're a, mm-hmm. if it's fair to characterize them this way, they're a cool team, even though they're they're on opposite sides. Yep. Except they're on opposite sides of the national barrier, but they're, I guess, more or less on the same side Yeah, where Torch is concerned. Hopefully their little side mission will come through, uh, Crown of Slaves 2 maybe, guys. And last but not least, I have to bring up the name Elaine DeCroix. Part of the problem in War of Honor, we find out her fate finally. The Masons have had her assassinated. Uh, I believe it's Bartisano that made sure she was, quote, taken care of, unquote. And the meaning of that was absolutely clear. Yeah. Again, uh, no tears shed over that one. Raul, so here uh, are two, at the end of the list of these characters, that we have another character that mm-hmm. I'll throw in that I made reference to earlier. And associated with that character is the f- first entry in the next part here, which is a ship called yes. Potawatomi Creek. So if you want, I'm going to talk about those two right now. Please do. Okay, and I'm going to go in reverse order. We're going to talk about the ship first, and I'm going to throw a quote in for context here, just so people Great. who haven't read the book in a while, maybe haven't read the book at all, or it, the ship didn't strike them. Here, here's the reference, a reference to this vessel. To call the vessel a warship was perhaps to be overly generous. It was, in fact, a frigate, a tiny class, which no major naval power had built in over 50 T years. But this was a very modern ship, less than three T years old, and it was Mantigaran built by the Hauptmann Cartel for the Anti-Slavery League, which, as everyone understood perfectly well, actually meant it had been built for the Audubon Ballroom before its lapse into respectability. And this particular frigate, TNS Potawatomi Creek, was rather famous. One might almost ha- have said notorious as the personal transport of one Anton Zilwicky, late of Her Manticoran Majesty's Navy. Now, here's the backstory on the historical reference. There was a pro-slavery town in Kansas in the 1800s, and in advance of the U.S. Civil War, there was a massacre that happened in that town of five pro-slavery men on the 24th of May in 1856, The fellow that led the attack was a man named John Brown. He was an abolitionist. And like I said, that preceded the, you could say it foreshadowed the American Civil War, which started about five years after that event. So the thing to take away before I roll into the other reference is that Potawatomi Creek was a a 
place where slavery was practiced, and there was this individual named John Brown who came, who led a group in and attacked and killed five pro-slavers. And the ship in the story is presumably named after that that victory, that that successful attack, that counter to slavery in in the town of Potawatomi Creek, which is in Kansas. Break, break. There's a character, another character, one not on the list. This will be the, the last of the last characters in the book named Harper S. Ferry. And he's one of the Queen of Queenberry's security team members. He's a former ballroom assassin. And I'm going to give some context to his name and then make the link. So for context, here's another quote out of the book. Harper S. Ferry stood in the throne room, arms crossed, watching the 30-odd people standing about. He knew he didn't cut a particular, particularly military figure, but that was fine with him. In fact, the ex-slaves of Torch had a certain fetish for not looking spit and polished. They were the galaxy's outcast mongrels, and they wanted no one, including themselves, to forget that, which didn't mean they took their responsibilities lightly. Harper S. Ferry. Harper's Ferry is a place... And I, I have no doubt this character is named after the location, Harper's Ferry, which was in Virginia yep. uh, back in the beginning. It is now in West Virginia. It's a historic town. You can go there and uh, learn lots of cool stuff. What happened there? John Brown, the same guy who, who made the attack in Potawatomi Creek, Kansas, and his anti-slavery, uh, made an anti-slavery raid on the U.S. arsenal in the town of Harper's Ferry, Virginia. 16, the attack happened 16 to 18 October, 1859. So not long after the attack at Potawatomi Creek, this was yet another prelude to the U.S. Civil War. And here's what I think is going on. I suspect most folks, unless they're history nerds, in particular U.S. history nerds, wouldn't recognize the name John Brown. In fact, it sounds like a made up name. It's just a generic name. Interestingly, talking about in the quote that I gave you, the the galaxy's outcast modules. They wanted no one, including themselves, to forget that. They didn't have military. They weren't particularly military cut. These are, these are, in some sense, people that can blend. They're just ordinary people. Here we have a man named John Brown. A re- this is a real person. And he conducts an attack on the U.S. arsenal in advance of the Civil War in the state of Virginia, which was a state that sided with the South in the Civil War. So once again, an anti-abolitionist attacking resources that could have been put to use to protect slavery, among other things. And rather than name a character John Brown and have everyone missed it, miss it, it looks to me like David Weber said, well, let's just name him Harper Ferry. Harper S. Ferry. Harper's Ferry. Kind of like R- Robert S. Pierre, or you know, which, <laughs> yep. which was a name taken from another name, but... So kind of a cool, there are two of our historic references right there. One is the ship named Potawatomi Creek, and then the man in the story, the character Harper S. Ferry. And those both point solidly back to abolitionist activism and um, and violence and wars, like the hotel or the hotel, the, uh, the ballroom and mm-hmm. all of that. So uh, kind of cool what David did there. Yep. And then I'm going to and break, break, and we can roll into more places, things, and organizations. Well, no, actually, and I've got two uh, more. 
for some reason, my edits got lost because I had two more names on the peoples and places. Uh, in fact, okay. this was why I was why I was uh, saying hold off on bringing them up as well, uh, because there's two more names that should be listed in uh, in the people, and that's uh, William Pawsley and uh, Raphael Sims. All right, we can talk about them right now. They, they were mentioned, actually, they weren't characters in the story, obviously, but they were right. mentioned in a quote that uh, was a really funny inside joke, if you know the history. And I'll yes. let you explain that one, JP. So, there's a conversation that's happening between Honor and Caporelli and Brigham. And I think it was Caporelli who said this. Hamish mentioned a couple of wet Navy types from Old Earth, someone named Raphael Sims and someone else named Bill Halsey. Although he did comment that you had marginally better tactical sense than Sims and better strategic sense than Halsey. Oh, he did, did he? Honor's eyes gleamed ominously and Caparelli chuckled. So there are, those are real references to real admirals in the Navy. And there are stories that can, and one of these individuals, the story can be taken two ways. There, there's the actually, other. yeah, because there's actual specific events that these refer to. Yes. So keep in mind, marginally better tactical sense than Sims and better strategic sense than Halsey. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about Halsey first. And I'm not, I'm not going to be creative and make stuff up. I'm going to read stuff that was good summary from the internet. This is from Britannica. This is about Admiral William Halsey, who was a fleet admiral uh, during World War II. A graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland in 1904, Halsey served as a destroyer commander in World War I. He became a naval aviator in 1935 and reached the rank of vice admiral in 1940. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 1941, Halsey's task force was virtually the only operational battle group left in the Pacific. While the United States rebuilt its fleet, he directed surprise forays on the Japanese-held islands in the Marshalls and Gilberts as well as on Wake Island. In 1942, his group maneuvered close enough to Tokyo for Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle, Doolittle's planes to carry out the first bombing of, Japanese, of the Japanese capital. Consistent successes led to his appointment in October of 42 as commander of the South Pacific Forces and Area. During the next two months, he played a vital role in the Battle of Santa Cruz Islands and the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, which was in November uh, of that year, and then was promoted to Admiral, so that would be four stars. From 1942 to mid-1944, Halsey directed the U.S. campaign in the Solomon Islands. In 44, Halsey became commander of the Third Fleet and led his carrier task force in brilliant airstrikes. He was responsible for covering and supporting U.S. land operations, as well as finding and destroying much of the Japanese fleet in the Battle of Leyte Gulf. He led U.S. forces in the final naval operations around Okinawa in the Ryukyu Islands from May 28, 1945 to September 2nd, when the Japanese ultimately surrendered. And then this is yeah, going to get to the, the reference. the Leyte Gulf that, the, that uh, uh, the quote is in reference to. Yes, yes. So there was a book... Uh, essentially a biography or is a review of a biography by a Lieutenant Colonel John Modinger that was in the uh, military review, which is an army publication in 2020. And in that 
review of the biography, Modinger says this, but no discussion of the man can escape delving into his irrepressible zeal once back at sea as commander of the Third Fleet to scratch more Japanese flat tops at the Battle of Leyte Gulf in 1944, and to the detriment of other considerations, his subsequent abandonment of then-exposed invasion force on the beaches mars an otherwise mostly splendid naval career. He, that would be biographer Thomas Hughes is who he's referring to, concludes that Halsey's basic mistake at Leyte was rooted in and not audacity, but orthodoxy. He could have protected the invasion force and gone after Vice Admiral Ozawa's decoy fleet by splitting his enormous naval force. However, he rigidly clung to the notion of concentration despite the the overall strategic context and overwhelming operational imbalance of forces favoring the United States by late 1944. And the takeaway from that is, in all those words, is he had a massive naval force. He chose to chase the Japanese, which is, that's not a problem. But in but doing he so, he abandoned assets expo- yeah. completely exposed. The point of being in that part of the Pacific at that time, among others, one of the prime reasons for being there was island hopping. And he, the force that actually does that, he, he arguably abandoned. Um, but this reviewer is making the point, really restating what it looks like the biographer or the historian was stating was that that wasn't audacity, it was orthodoxy. He was wed for all of the right reasons to the importance of concentration of force, not realizing that this was a case when he could have been a little more creative and probably done a lot more damage to the enemy. But it it, it tarnished his reputation. What's what's funny is it's not funny, but what's funny is everyone basically excused him for it, and life went on. And then Halsey, late in his life, brought it up again, started talking about it in a defensive way, which kind of that's really what hurt his reputation. Yeah, was he he dug it back up, got real defensive about it when he should have just left it alone because the Navy had essentially said, look, he didn't do anything wrong. He made the decision he made as a commander. We see this kind of stuff in the in these books, right? These commanders that are making decisions in combat. And in at least one case, early in the Honorverse books, we watched people sitting back in the comf- comfort of their headquarters questioning the, the operational commander in the middle of the fight. Well, why did you do that? Why didn't you do this other thing? And Halsey got a little of that. The guy in the end, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish him. He he was a, an incredible admiral and an incredible warrior. So when, he, when he you hear drove, a statement, he better drove sp- a lot of the shift toward carrier. He did. Combat. He he is a father of of those kinds of operations, and of course, we're watching this in these books, right? The advent of a, essentially their carriers. Mm-hmm. Lack carriers. Wasn't the Enterprise his flagship at one point? I don't I don't remember. Or oh, he had a deep connection to the Enterprise, the original Enterprise. Oh sure. I, I can't remember. He, he it wouldn't surprise me if he did. But uh so the comment to pull Halsey back to the statement that was made, better strategic sense than Halsey. If you view Halsey as a strategic success that had a blunder, a significant blunder in his career, that's a that's a pretty awesome compliment. If you view Halsey through the lens of what a screw up, you know, that was a major goof, it it becomes funny 
it's not funny, but it is funny that that Hamish says, "Hey, you have better strategic sense than Halsey." You know, like you know, you'll know enough honor to divide your forces when you ought to. I, you're not the person that's going to be wed so tightly to doctrine and um, to doctrine. We'll just call it that. That you mm-hmm. miss an opportunity to cause even more damage to the enemy. But that's that reference to Halsey. But I think she, I think Hamish was trying to tweak her, yes. tweak her nose, not, not, not taking away anything from Halsey, but just tweaking her nose and mostly because of the, re- the next reference to Sims. Yes. So this other character was a rear admiral in, in the Navy and here again from Britannica, here's what they say about him. American Confederate naval officer whose daring raids in command of the man of war, Alabama, interfered with Union here comes the significance for the story we're we're in the middle of interfered with union merchant shipping during the middle two years of the American civil war. When Alabama, his home state seceded from the union in January, 1861, Sims resigned his commission as a commander. And with the outbreak of the war in April, he received a similar appointment in the Confederate Navy after capturing 17 union merchant ships while in command of the packet Sumter he was assigned to command the Alabama, newly built in England. Between 1862 and 1864, he made a series of brilliant and successful cruises, capturing, sinking, or burning 82 Union ships valued at more than $6 million. Finally, he met the Union ship Kearsarge in the English Channel, and after a 90-minute battle, was forced to surrender. After being rescued from the water by an English yacht, he rested in Switzerland and returned to the Confederacy via Mexico. And then from Naval History and Heritage Command, this there's this addition. Commerce raiding has always been a recognized and accepted method of sea warfare. We're seeing it all through these honorable stories, by the way. The Heritage Command didn't say that. I just threw that in. Uh, it's probable that no individual naval, naval commander nor any single ship in our long history has recorded a more spectacular success in the field than Captain Raphael Sims of the Confederate Navy and his CSS Alabama. So marginally better tactical sense than Sims is, is a, I'll just say, is a high compliment. This guy, uh, even though he's on the side that I think we would all probably agree was the wrong side to be on in the Civil War, uh, this guy was was a, a naval genius, and he he rampaged on a very tactical level and caused gigantic strategic effects in the end because of what he did, where he chose to do it, which ships he chose to do it to just an amazing tactician. So back to honor. But likewise, his reputation got tarnished for one questionable event. Toss it out there. Uh, the battle with the Kearsarge. Um, yeah. yeah. Yep. He, he made a, he, he made a bit of a tactical goof there more or less underestimating them and their broadside. Yeah. And we've and seen got his again, ship not, shot from under him. Not direct that I can tell not direct references to that battle, but there are plenty of examples in the telling of this story of our our good navy of Manticore and their allies, the cautions that go out periodically about resting on your prior successes. The enemy gets a vote. That's my mm-hmm. phrase. It's not I didn't coin that phrase, but um, I don't recall David using it in the stories. The you know they're they are very they being honor, but her peers and her officers are very aware that you you don't want a Kearsarge. 
You don't want that to happen. It can happen, and right. they need to be mindful of it. Likewise, they would love it if the enemy falls for that, and they are the cure. The and the good guys are the cure sarge, and they and they lay waste to somebody who might even be a tactical genius. So we get a a reference to a historic tactician, but a senior officer who's commanding quite a bit of action in the form of Sims, and then we have a. A, a, certainly an operational genius, if not a strategic genius in the form of Admiral Halsey. But both of these guys, because they're humans, if nothing else, made some pretty amazing mistakes mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. So uh, it's, a, and, it's a compliment with a caution. Yes. Yeah. And it's done in a way that it's a gentle tease. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, was, it made me smile when I saw this. He, he, Hamish, did comment that you had marginally better tactical sense than Sam's and better strategic sense than Halsey and honors response, of course, is, oh, he did, did he? So I, it looks like, as written, she the character took it as as a compliment, sure, but really it was a it was a, a jab in fun. Mm-hmm. Honor's eyes gleamed ominously, and Caparelli yeah. chuckled. So. It was re- that was it was really well done. Yeah. So oh. so those are the those are the four ties. There there are more in there. I mentioned Clausewitz in the setup, but we've talked more than enough about that guy. Yep. Um, awesome as he is, there's just not we don't need to say more about him at least not for now. But those four those four references I thought were pretty cool. How David worked those in. Yeah. Okay. A few places, other places to refer to here. Solon. Uh, Honor gets handed a pretty devastating defeat here. In fact, she thinks uh, she she has to leave Michelle. She thinks Mike got killed out of result out of a result of that action. Yeah, basically, well, she should have taken uh, she she should have taken the advice of Hamish a little bit better because uh, she fell for a trap that she had used herself by uh, Giscard. Yeah. However, the Battle of Lovat, she gets some payback for it and unfortunately in that case javier doesn't survive the event manticore actually we probably need to just say the manticore binary system is the big focus of the last fourth of the book obviously culminating in the uh, battle of manticore which i think we'll get much more in depth when we get to the story discussion I'm going to call it an organization, the Eighth Fleet. That's Honor's Fleet. It is the only offensive fleet the Manticorans have. And at the end of the day, it's more or less the only fleet either the Manticorans or Havenites have. Things to mention, the Apollo missile system, uh, mistletoe, the Viper missile, things that... uh, Haven hadn't quite anticipated, and we're going to find out they're not the only ones who haven't anticipated these items. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Game changers. Manticorn research and development is kicking them out right and left here. Thank God, because that's the only thing that saved the Star Kingdom. Manpower Incorporated, and I guess to a degree we can say Mesa. We see some of the things... Out of the, the, the meeting, in fact. Technically, they're a corporation. But in the meetings that we see, are those really the kind of powers? Are, are they exercising corporate powers? Example, the last thing I was going to mention, Operation Rat Poison. It, that's a good question to be asking at this point. Yeah. 
what really is manpower in Mesa? Well, what we've learned up to here, and then this starts to cast a shadow over it, is that Mesa is a planetary-sized corporate complex, and the corporations are effectively the government. And manpower is obviously a powerful government if they're a part of But this book is revealing- The top of the pyramid, that, that they're Yeah. Throw a bunch of competitive or even like-minded companies together and tell them they've got to manage themselves. Fights are going to erupt. So it, it, you kind of accept it like, all right, you know, this is, this is a corporate controlled, the corporations are really the government in effect. But this book makes you start to question that. Because of what you just wrote, Raul, you know, technically mm-hmm. a corporation, but are those the kind of powers that you would expect a corporation to be exercising? And it seems not. So now the question is, what are we looking at? Yep. And A, I'm sure you're going to bring this up when you start getting into the themes. And B, you just gave us the perfect segue for Jim to go into discussion of the story. Okay. I will do that. Uh, at the end of each little section, I will pause in case we want to add uh, our own comments. So, here we go. Because of the policies of the High Ridge government, the Republic of Haven is able to successfully attack Manticoran Alliance shipyards. The Star Kingdom finds itself on the short end of the strategic balance with their enemies. Okay? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Fortunately, the home system's still kicking, but a lot of their secondary industry is ba- basically Havens managed to s- stop uh, to, to, to knock uh, Manticore and Honor on her heels a bit. Yeah. Okay. Honor is given command of the Eighth Fleet, the only heavy formation available for operations against Haven. It is determined that it will be at least two T years before any significant construction can be completed to boost their wall of battle. The Andermani Navy falls behind on new constructions, and the Manticorans overestimate the number of super-dreadnoughts under construction. Manticore is forced to reactivate pre-pod reserve ships to bolster their numbers. The network of Manticoran spies on Haven have been discovered and removed or declare loyalty to President Pritchard. So, uh, they still don't know the location of Bolt Hole, the Havenite research facility run by Shannon Foraker, responsible for the advancement of weapons uh, and allows Haven to send more super dreadnoughts into the fight. A strong home fleet is more important than ever to Manticore because Theisman knows the locations of three important shipbuilding facilities, and if they are destroyed, it will cripple the Manticoran war effect. Haven also works to increase production at known Havenite shipyards to lessen the reliance on Bolt Hole. Lot of stuff there going on. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is. Haven knows where the location for Manticore's strategic development. Manticore does not know the location for Haven's strategic development. That's a problem for Manticore. Well, we're looking yeah. we're looking at a switch now in power. Which side is stronger? So mm-hmm. Well, Haven's always been numer- numerically superior. Right. 
but the tech but, gap is closing. Yes. And tech only gets you so far. Oh, yeah. If you start losing too many high-tech ships and the tech is what gives you the advantage, you hit a point where the advantage is not relevant mm-hmm. because you're just overwhelmed. And that seems mm-hmm. to be the the Havenite military you know, approach is, I might not be as good as you technically, but I'm going to overwhelm you with numbers. There, there, there's actually a line in the story that uh, states quantity has a quality all its own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope I didn't steal someone's quote. No, I don't think so. Well, okay. Not mine. All right. The goal of the eighth fleet is to make sure Haven is busy replacing losses to their own ships of the wall and infrastructure. So they don't have time to attack critical star kingdom assets. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the meantime, all of Grayson and the Harrington Steading mourned the death of Howard Clinkscales, the longtime regent of Honor's interests there. Honor thinks about how those she knows will pass before her, owing to them not having the prolonged treatments. She creates a blood bond between the Harrington clan and the Clinkscales clan to bind their two families in perpetuity. Like uh, JP said, that. That was a misty eye moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sweaty eyeballs in uh, JP's lingo. You're right. <laughs> when that when that part of the book was over, I had to take a break. Yeah. I needed a breath. Honor and Hamish work closely on the military and political challenges facing the Alliance. While the situation is nowhere near as dire as it was during the High Ridge government, there are still personal and professional difficulties for them to work out. As time passes, they find themselves trapped between emotions and their responsibilities. Soon, the situation becomes even more complicated when Honor becomes pregnant because of a miscalculation in having her contraceptive implant replaced in a timely manner. Lady Emily comes up with a solution to everything when she proposes a polygamous marriage between her, Honor, and Hamish, which is a common arrangement on Honor's second homeworld of Grayson. Eventually, Raoul Alexander Harrington is born the legitimate son of Hamish, Emily, and Honor. Uh, piece of advice, be careful when you come back from the dead. (laughs) (laughs) So say we all. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so an interest, interesting arrangement, few surprises, and yeah, Honor dropped the ball there. Okay, uh, Honor leads her 8th fleet on a mission against Solon, but is defeated by Admiral Giscard. Mike Hankey is presumed to be dead, but everyone is surprised and pleased when they learn she has been taken prisoner and her injuries are being treated on Haven. Mike is sent back to Manticore with an invitation for Elizabeth to meet with President Pritchard for peace talks. Unfortunately, the Messin alignment tries to kill numerous Alliance officials, as well as Queen Barry of the Kingdom of Torch and Elizabeth's niece, Ruth. Elizabeth is convinced that the Havenites are behind the attempts. Furious, she cancels the peace talks and sends a scathing note to President Pritchard declaring the resumption of hostilities and orders the 8th Fleet back in the battle. Honor leads a decisive battle against Admiral Giscard at Lovat, 
Uh, Giscard is killed in the engagement, much to the dismay of Eloise Pritchard. So, yeah. Yeah. And as much as we learned there, that's the shadow I was referring to. Something's, we don't, we don't know enough yet. Something, and we talked about this, I think, even in the last book, right? Um, Well, this motive that Mesa or manpower might have to interfere, to want to cause the two entities that are both against their, their business, meaning the slave trade, to waste time and resources on each other. But, and Raul, I think you hinted at it in that conversation. It, it mm-hmm. seems to be more than that. Mm-hmm. And, and now here we are getting a hint that there is more than that. It, it, you're you're it getting a that, very but strong it's that hint and that more. there is much more than that. And uh, it, this leads for, to a cool, I can't wait yes. to get to the next book thing, which <laughs> you know, I made reference to the, the intro of the, of the next book because I just started that thing. And um, the, oh, I can't wait to get into what, I hope we learn more. Mm. And we also have the crown, next Crown of Slaves book set up in this section as well, oh, yeah. because uh, this is where Anton and Victor, how do we put it, waltz into a high security <laughs> base, uh, crossing the fingers that they don't get blown out of space and actually get to speak up first, ask to talk to Honor. That that actually is a fun little exchange there. Oh, yeah. uh, Ending up with uh, Honor asking, uh, by the way, while you're at it, would you just, would you uh, shut off that suicide device that yeah. you, you're, you've got your hand waiting on? <laughs> yeah, there, there is a lot uh, to that, that conversation. I'm not going to say how I know that, yeah. but what? <laughs> on the, on the- here, as you mentioned though, Jim, we have, we have an entity that's killing people and, and the, the sadness of it is. They they did this in a way to make one side blame the other yeah. and and conceal their own role in it, mm-hmm. and it's working. And uh, you know it, that's a whole new factor to consider in how this we you know, the talks between Manticore and Haven are off. Yeah, and yeah. the Queen is so mad. She's like, "We're back at war right now." Yeah, and everybody's blaming. And the and in all honesty, it. it like like they they've said like they even honor admits you know th- there's a good there's a, there's a good case for it to be haven and yes. yeah can the queen be justified ignoring that uh especially with the background yeah you got this stuff going on in the periphery all right we mm-hmm. we've been directed to pay attention to manticore and haven and this other stuff is building <laughs> up in the background, right? And you know what? A lesser author would have let the peace talks go through and then Haven and Manticore team up and save the entire galaxy, right? It takes courage to do what David Weber did here <laughs> and restart the war, and now we've got a We've got battles going on everywhere and who's fighting who and why and all kinds of stuff. Yep. Yeah. Big battles. Yeah. Big battles. Kind of like using gasoline to put out fires. Yeah. (laughs) And the the whole assassination bit, I mean, this is where Timothy Mayers tries to assassinate Honor. 
at speaking of heart wrenching, Eloise Pritchard figures out, finds out that uh, oh, gee, the legislaturists <laughs> tried to assassinate, uh, not tried, successfully assassinated Elizabeth's father. Yeah, yeah. So now she knows what ha- she knows the truth of what's happened as well. And you begin to suspect, okay, what other string pulling is going on here? Oh, yes. And that obviously fuels her, I'll say, humility and integrity mm-hmm. to try to communicate to the queen to say, I, she's not going to say why. She wants to have a face-to-face, but... And she's she, going to hold we, up to that end we, the Yeah, we really need said. to sit down, and she wants to reveal this to the queen's face, not through a letter... Not not on a two dimensional screen, and and that just got thwarted, and and right as we're realizing there is some there's some shenanigans going on here that people are are able to consider but but look past because there seem to be more obvious solutions, and then and then we get there's actually a shift a little bit right it mm-hmm. Weber pulls us away from that and focuses back on. Uh, flowers and puppies and babies but um <laughs> but because i think he he's preparing as a good author to give us a severe case of whiplash yeah yeah so here's our next installment of flowers and puppies and babies <laughs> or kitties and babies i suppose in this case um when honor arrives at manticore she refuses to go to an official reception in her honor in favor of going home to meet her newborn daughter, Catherine, and a biological child of Emily and Hamish. Aww. So for those not tracking, there are two babies. Yes. And boy, this is this really kind of highlights the change in where, where honor has come from the earlier books. Yep. Yes. So the queen, is, you know what? The queen is just cool about it, too. She's like, oh, uh, well, yeah, I completely understand. Do what you need to do, which makes her really cool, too. Yeah. (laughs) All right, here's our last one. There is some debate between Theismann and Pritchard on what to do next. It comes down to a few choices. Offer to enter peace talks again, surrender to the Star Kingdom, or mount an all-out attack to be led by Lester Tourville. The decision is to attack the Manticore system and in hopes of ending the war once and for all. The Battle of Manticore is a victory for the Alliance, but the costs are high. Thousands of ships are destroyed. Millions of lives are lost, including that of Honor's friend Alistair McKeon. Both sides are left with no significant offensive capabilities. Holy moly, what a battle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the only functioning fleet left of the two star nations is Honor's Eighth Fleet. His Eighth Fleet. Yeah. Which is what Mesa wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, it, it was incredible to read. It was, there was no certainty at all in what was going to happen. Nothing was revealed. I mean, it was just a fight. It was a fight. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, we, we know from the past books and we know from our interview with David that he, he doesn't have a problem killing people and, and shaking up what he might've wanted as the author or what we want as the readers. Uh-huh. 
uh, I didn't know how the, I assume you too, Jim, I mean, if we haven't read these books before, I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew that whatever happens, the story would go on because, well, we know there's mm-hmm. more books, but it that was intense. And that battle was described, as I recall, as the largest battle in naval history yeah. or yes. something like that. It was massive. It was like, yeah, it, it was probably something on order of at least 900 of the wall. Yeah. Just crazy. Plus hundreds and hundreds of smaller ships. Yeah. Not to mention a few thousand uh, lakhs. Yeah. I mean, it, it was massive. But it was, and, and you know something? I got really scared for Manticore because of all mm-hmm. that stuff coming at them. And it didn't look, yeah. it looked hopeless. Yeah. Well, what's the, if what's the name of the book? It, at all at costs. All costs. Yeah. And you saw both sides go there. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because they were kind of forced into the situation. I, I feel for Pritchard and Tiesman because, yeah, I mean, peace talks, forget it. Yeah. Mesa made sure that that wasn't possible at all. So it was one side or the other had to win and... Their decision was we, we've got to get we've got to get this ended as quickly as possible because there's something much bigger going on yeah. because they f- figured out that there is something bigger going on. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I I'm just glad the way they ended the battle. It's like Honor made it real clear she could blow Lester Torvald's entire remaining force out of space from what, 150 million or basically an unlimited range without batting an eye. Yeah. And it's like, surrender, don't make me kill you. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, uh, I'm just going to turn it over to JP to take us through the uh, themes. Okay. Continuing from the shadow of Saganami is that the construct we're using to kind of digest all of this called Dime. There is a lot of it here. <laughs> it, it, no surprise, Raul, you warned us it was going to shift this way. And it wasn't at the, at the expense of some crazy, uh, awesome, in quotes, military battles and all of that. But the emphasis really wasn't there as, as grand as all of that warfare was. Um, first is industrial warfare. That is a... A maybe the dominant theme in the book. Take it in in the context of dime. It's a nexus between the M, the the military, and the E, which is economic. The U, just you know, back to 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 David Weber tying these things to the real world to teach us some lessons, if not just history. The U.S. military actually has a war college called. Uh, what what used to be called the Industrial College of the Armed Forces. Today, it's called the Dwight D. Eisenhower School for National Security and Resource Strategy. It is a school that focuses in part, if not almost exclusively on industrial warfare. That This is a thing. You can cripple a country, mm-hmm. and it's explained very well by David through the telling of the story. You can cripple a country, cripple an enemy, by going after the industry that matters as it relates to their war effort. You're going to see a lot more of this going forward to uh, uh, JP. Yeah. Excellent. So, and then, and then commerce rating was mentioned, right? We talked about, um, mm-hmm. 
Sims and and the ties to what that guy did. But we see it again all through these Weber novels. Um, pi- piracy is the as the the ugly you know the the illegal side of it, and then the privateers we we've talked about, and the navies in, at war uh, conducting commerce raiding to impact the economy of the enemy. Diplomacy is all over this book, legitimate attempts, but as we saw, perceptions are important and diplomacy can be exceedingly difficult. Sorry, who is that character, that that academic nerd? Um, Houseman. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Houseman. It's not as simple as reading a book. It really surfaces in Haven's efforts to realize what had been going on and then to offer to sit down with Manticore. That that was cool. But what we got instead was a brutal war for the reasons we just talked about. And it comes back to this diplomacy, if nothing else, is all about perceptions. And those perceptions may be 100% right and they may be wrong. Let's not forget the eye of uh, Dime either. Uh, a lot of people think of information as just propaganda. And here we see information, knowledge, knowing what's going on, being yeah. used. I mean, that that's Mesa's primary weapon in a yes. lot of ways. Yeah, because they can't go toe-to-toe with these two navies. And it, it, mm-hmm. at, at a minimum, can you imagine the fear, if we're only talking about the slave trade, the fear they would have if, in a future where there was a, a, a manticore haven agreement, an ally- I'll call it an alliance, where they say, we can put our differences aside, we have to put an end to this thing that Mace is doing, that manpower is doing. There would be no more manpower. And and they desperately don't want that. Again, not to just dismiss that it, it definitely appears there's more than that in play here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the informational piece, that is a weapon when you don't have the military to stand up to another military, it becomes really important. Look, look, uh, all through the cold, this is just modern stuff. Look all through the cold war, right up through today, especially post nine 11 on the role that information plays to manipulate or shape, uh, opinions globally. Well, Weber was writing about this stuff well, during the cold war and, and we're at, we're actually after the end of the cold war technically now, but this is, there's nothing new here. And those, those guys, those Clausewitzes and the Sun Tzu's, and they wrote about this stuff as well, shaping mm-hmm. the enemy and that the target is the enemy's mind. Uh, we're watching it happen on a grand scale. So uh, w- one more related to the dime thing and then one one kind of uh, more heartwarming one. Um, the second to the last here is the impact of domestic politics on a military and specifically on a nation's ability to project military power. The dime thing, those are called the instruments of national power. The M is just one. It's just one instrument. But two related points here. Uh, First, domestic political decisions have a very real impact on the military, specifically the budget and what that means in terms of the operations and the maintenance of the force that you currently have fielded. Not R&D, not the ships that you're building that you can put in the field tomorrow. You have forces that are available to do the work of the military available today. They are limited by decisions that were made yesterday in terms of ultimately it's, it's uh, economic decisions, but I'm going to, I'm rolling that into domestic political decisions. 
So your fielded forces mm-hmm. are, aren't free to just pretend they have all the money in the world and go do all the things they may want to do or that their civil leadership wants them to do. Fielding technologically advanced weapon systems can't be done in a snap of a finger, and we're watching David explain that very well. Both <laughs> yeah. sides are racing to get not only current technology, but new technology in the field. And it doesn't happen quickly, especially these ships, uh, like ships today. They're time complex. To and then to train the people to operate them is complex. It takes time. So money and time are real factors. As a result, when a threat emerges, whether it's one you might have thought was coming or one that surprises you, you're really only capable of going to war with the army you have. And that is a loose quote of um, Don Rumsfeld when he was the Secretary of Defense at the beginning of Desert Shield. I've mentioned that before. He took a lot of grief in the press for that statement because segments of society were very upset at the state of the military the military that we had that we would now have to present as a capable force in an environment they weren't designed to be in. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that they were incapable, but that wasn't what they were built to address. The threat changed. And in, in a moment of trying to explain to people and being the grumpy guy that he was, he says, you go to war with the army you have. People can't be mad at that. It's it's the truth. It's the truth. And and here's the other thing. You could have the the most you know, prescient people, the best analysts and all that, and accurately predict the threat that's around the corner, you still may not have the military you need because, you know, society is complex mm-hmm. and it's not just the military. It's it's everything that a, a civil society does. And there are only so many schmeckles, right? So you, you do what you do and you balance all the yep. needs and you come out hopefully good all the way around, at least good enough. But we're watching the military component of that problem play out here um, in the domestic political sense. We've talked about that before. I roll that into the D, which is diplomacy and dime, because a country's diplomacy is an extension of essentially domestic doctrine, who we want our friends to be, who we want our enemies to be, how we're going to plan to address our enemies, how we're going to defend ourselves, how strong do we want our economy, all of those things we've watched tax discussions in these books, all of that, it, it all touches. You can't untangle them mm-hmm. from each other. Now, here's the, here's the one more heartwarming one, and I'm going to shut up. JP, uh, uh-huh. breaking context for a minute here. You're talking about the death of La Follette in that last sentence. He, it's not him. It's uh, Mattingly that gets killed. La Follette becomes oh, okay. uh, Raul's armsman, remember? Yes. Yes, of course. That's that is when Ra, when he becomes uh, Raoul's armsman. That's not, that definitely is the service becomes love. Right, right. Yeah, and that's what I, I was anyway. I mentioned the service which becomes love, but yeah, yeah. I, um, I just wanted to catch the, you. I just wanted to let you know that so we could break uh, the flow and to get in. Yes, Jim. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the the last thing here is. Uh, yes, uh, the last one is service, which becomes love, and we see. Um, I just not a lot, but some some really cool examples of that. And the one that really deserves the most highlighting is the death of Howard Plinkscales and how honor, uh, how everybody handles um, the remembrance of him and the challenge. Not done bluntly in the book, but but it was there. And I'll just throw it out there, you know, for us fans is remember. Howard Klinkscales 
when he made first contact with honor. Mm-hmm. This guy was not a fan. He was a gentleman. He was professional. But this this fellow did not like what he thought he saw happening. And in fact, what happened and quickly became a fan of honors and then became an employee of honors and ultimately served her in, in the most loving of ways. What a, That service became love. And you see it with honors armsmen. And uh, there are other examples through the through the book and through these books, but that came out strong, primarily focused on 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 Howard, yeah, and uh, the loss that he was to honor and to his family and to everyone that he ever touched. I don't. I could not have foreseen that being the case back when he first met Honor. This guy was a stick in the mud, mm-hmm. and what an amazing story of of you know and. You know, obviously not husband and wife kind of love, right. but a, a just amazing love. It was a father-daughter kind of love, though. Yes, in many ways. So uh, I wanted to call that out as a theme because uh, all this other stuff is nerdy and poli-sci and international affairs stuff. And I know there's folks out there yep. who probably wish I would stop bringing that all up. Um, <laughs> but the book's but then we get that it. very heartwarming picture of Honor's relationship with Howard. Mm-hmm. Howard's relationship with honor and what yeah. and and ultimately what that meant it was awesome not that he you know, not that he passed away but that that his service to her was amazing what an example you know one of the things that stood out for me in this was there, there was a lot of development personal development where the armsmen are, were concerned as well yeah and in fact that's one of my favorite plot points that that I'm going to be listing later and we we see that with uh with uh, the conversations they have amongst themselves as they're coaching their, you know, Mattingly and uh, and uh, La Follette are coaching their juniors, and then La Follette becoming uh, Raul's personal armsman. Yeah, speaking and, of misty eyes, he wasn't happy about that, but but he understood. Honor explains it to him, and he embraced it. Yeah, I think the part he was the most unhappy about was. Part of he he suspected part, honor had an ulterior motive keep him alive. Yeah, she all but said that, as I recall. I mean, there mm-hmm. was she was so thankful for his service. The last thing she wanted to see happen was him dying. It look at all that just happened in the story, right? I mean, oh my gosh, the scale of loss is staggering, and and uh, he, but the flip he, side of it, I cannot imagine her trusting her son, her only son, to anyone short of an Andrew Lafayette. Yeah. She, she, yeah, I mean, she who else could she trust at that? To, like, a, like a good parent, right? I'll, I'll lay down my life for my child. Mm-hmm. And now she is, in a sense, doing that by, by telling the man who has protected her so well, I want you to protect my child. Well, what about you? Hey, there, there are others. There are people that yeah. can continue to take care of me. He's uh, Raul but is I need more you important. To, yes. Yes. Even though his name was spelled uh, differently. <laughs> Incorrectly. <laughs> Those are them. I'm sure our listeners have some others. They Please, guys, gals, send those in to us. Um, we don't have all the answers. We didn't get all this from David or anything like that. So point out things that we might be missing that are obvious to you for those themes. Um, right in. Let's roll to points of plot, our favorites. And should we start with Jim? Sure, sounds good to me. Okay. 
<laughs> Pick one. <laughs> this story has <laughs> everything. We have a good dose of Murray, the explainer, great battles, lots of awe moments, scary stuff, new characters, old beloved characters, death and resurrection, death and life. Okay, so if I have to pick one, uh, I guess I'll choose the meeting between Honor, Anton, and Victor. It is a look back uh, and a look forward, a setup for some future installment where the Manticorns will hopefully learn how all the assassinations were not perpetrated by the Havenites, as Elizabeth is convinced, uh, but by some third sinister party, and I'm sure we can guess who's at the bottom of it. Okay, I love the way this progressed. First, the deaths of the guys responsible for revising the correspondence of the causing of the Second War, the attempted assassination of Barry and Ruth, the meeting, the rejection of peace overtures, and the bloody final battle as Haven goes for broke to the end the war that everyone seems to be tired of. And that's... Yeah, and that nobody wanted. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, I'll kick it over to JP. Man, hard to do with a fat book like this, but uh, it, it's related to what you said, Jim. The last episode I mentioned, it was interesting seeing a third party manipulating the two primary parties in the story. Well, here it is in a fuller and uglier way as we watch what I speculated about actually emerging. Someone wants Manicor and Haven to continue to fight. I'm still not sure we're seeing the real reason why just yet. I think the reasons we're seeing are real, but I don't think that that's the whole answer. And as I mm -hmm. said earlier, Raul, you mentioned uh, it seemed to be much more than just the business of slave trading. Sure seems so now, but I don't, I don't feel like I really know what the larger motive is. So this is a cliffhanger. Yeah, it actually is. How about you, Raul? Well, I am going to try and pick a few of them out. Hopefully, I won't go too long in any one particular. As you mentioned here, finally getting the reveal of who really has been the bad guy all along. Uh, you know, here's the thing. We don't know the specifics of who he is and what he truly represents, but the mask is coming off. And, you know, this is something that goes back, hints being dropped. I think it was in the second anthology six years before this book. Hmm. So David's playing a long game. And that, that's one of the things that I like about this. Uh, he, he's, he's really got a long-term plan. Plot point that I definitely loved was my kinky story. And just thank God he didn't kill her off. I'll say that again. Yeah. And I, I was genuinely worried that he would. When, it, when she got left, I, I, I'm sitting there thinking, Oh God, he's just going to kill her and he's going to do it off camera. Pitchforks and rope time. <laughs> I'll tell you what, you talk often, uh, Raul, about wanting to throw books across the room. <laughs> if, if, yeah, don't throw this one. It's, it's only hefty. There's, there's only been two books that I've ever done that with. Well, I'll tell you what, if Mike had been killed in the way that it appeared she had been, my Kindle would have gone flying across the room. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. But the flip side is it, it's good to know that Michelle Hankey has great things in store or in her future. There, there was, I was almost mentioned as a note, uh, Mike was sent to Talbot. Going to get much more about that later. 
Another point that I really liked was, and I've mentioned this before, the assassination mess. Tempt on Honor, on Queenberry, successful on, on Webster, the Giancola, uh, Grossclaw, actually Giancola was an accent. Grossclaw was another one of the assassination attempts. Elizabeth's father, the the, the connection with the Andermani, uh, the uh, emperor's, was it nephew? And of course, Honor's handling the attempt on, on her life with regard to mirrors, not how she had to defend herself and the bridge crew, but how she handled the inspectors. Loved and, it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'd like to interject here. Yes. How telling it is the way the assassins were manipulated with the uh, nanotechnology. Yeah, this is going to be a problem. Yeah, if that doesn't point a fig- finger somewhere, nothing will. <laughs> and for honor, it is pointing a finger. She can only think of two. She can only think of two people, peoples, I guess, that could do something like that. Uh, namely, Mesa and Beowulf. Yeah, but everyone's distracted by the obvious, which is this. Uh, I forget what the word they use for the programming that that is a known thing, mm-hmm. and it takes way. It takes so long. And and people are so baffled by this that they they're they're forcing themselves to go to what they know, which is totally reasonable. Right. But at the same time, they're going that doesn't make sense. But there's another reason why it is reasonable. E- even Elizabeth, or actually, no, I take it back. It was Willie admits, yeah, th- th- this technology is beyond haven, but <laughs> it's still yeah, th- th- they're getting it from somewhere somewhere else, but. Uh, yeah. You got to convince me it's not Haven that is getting the tech, buying the technology and using right. it. And that's where it's breaking down. We'll figure part out of the how they did it later. Down, they, hmm? I say the attitude is they'll figure out how they did it later. I have no doubt in my mind it was Haven. That's the, yeah. they're just driven back to that. And part of the reason yeah. they're not buying that this could possibly be manpower is simply goes back to what I said before. Manpower is a company. The people who mm-hmm. are doing this are acting like a national power, li- like a sovereign nation, yeah. not like a company. Yeah. And of course, pointing the finger at Haven would be only a natural consequence of Elizabeth's father, because right. yep. that was a result of tampering by Haven. Yeah. We There's think, a history of it. It's, it's not illogical. At least that's what we think at the moment. Yeah. I, I've, of course, the Battle of Manticore. How how could that not be a favorite plot point? You know, and like Jim said, there's a price to victory, and this price hurt. Not just in the material sense, but uh, we we lost we we lost some people that were dear to us out of all of that. And the the big absolute favorite point for me is the interweaving of the three arcs. I'm not going to call it a side series because I hate the term, but the events from Crown of Slaves and Shadow of Saganami are both key elements in this story. And I'll be frank, if you haven't read those two books, there are important parts of this plot that you will, at best, simply not appreciate as much, or at worst, you'll flat out not understand them. And this book, as well, is also setting up the all three arcs where, where they're going to be going forward. 
this is sort of a this is sort of a nexus for the three story arcs where things converge and then they're going to diverge out again. And not only that, there there's a lot of overlap of events. So you know, we we saw the return of uh, nasty of the nasty kitty of Hexapuma. <laughs> yep, and had a bit of a retelling of that. Different contexts, different. Uh, they're the same thing. In fact, in one piece, it's almost exactly the same wording, but with what you know now from what happened before there, it takes on a whole different meaning. And that's a gutsy thing for an author to do. Um, in fact, da- David has gotten some criticism for doing some of that with the, and I hate, I, I won't understand it. Uh, it's like, okay, he's padding his word count. I don't think so. The people Having read who it, make I, that accusation, I, I, I'm sorry. Um, these books are already massive. He doesn't have to pad anything. <laughs> yep. Um, that, and of course, in, in some cases, there were several years between installments. So you don't have that perspective that we're getting here. You know, back then, you didn't have the perspective we're getting here as you read things straight through one after another with, with you know, without a, without much, if any, break. And when you read them the way we're reading them, th- those overlaps make a lot more sense. Uh, it, it's something I've seen in television shows, especially K-dramas, love to, love to do that. Uh, repeat bits of the series with more information added that completely changes your perspective on how you see it. It's a gutsy thing to do. And I think he, I actually think he pulled it off. Well, um, one of the things I'm wanting to ask him, this will be on our next David Weber interview, was did you have the reread, being able to read this in straight sequence in mind when he had a lot of these overlaps? Because I've actually done it both ways with the long waits and with the over, and it's it's a different experience. So that brings us to you, Jim, with quotes. Yeah. Uh, I will go ahead and kick it off. Eh? Uh, this is the end of a conversation between Hamish and the Foreign Secretary Langtree. Uh, some see the ceasefire as an opportunity to bolster the building of the war machine. Hamish sees another opportunity. It all makes sense the way you interpret it. And Elizabeth and Willie, he said, and you may all be right, but I can't help thinking. Tony. What if you're not? What if I'm not? What if this isn't just a chance to buy time to organize our defenses, but a genuine opportunity to end the war without anyone else getting killed? In that case, a lot of people are going to be killed who wouldn't have to be, Langtree said levelly. But all any of us can do is the best we can do and hope at the end of the day we can live with our choices. I know. Amos Alexander said softly, I know. Okay, and my next quote is, um, of late... That's a good one. Yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> of late, Honor has occasionally been feeling sick to her stomach. As she heads into the doctor's exam room, There is there's a discussion between her and her armsman, Andrew, about the execution of his duties. We're ready for you now, your grace. Honor switched off her pad, rose from the comfortable chair in the private waiting room, scooped Nimitz up from the chair beside her, and followed the nurse. 
Andrew LaFollette trailed along behind her, and she hid a smile as uh, she remembered his expression the first time he'd accompanied her physician, and she'd innocently invited him to accompany her into the exam room. She hadn't done that to him again, but she tasted his own memory of the event as he followed her down the hallway, and to be honest, she was tempted to do it again this time. Since it was only too obvious, La Follette strongly supported McGinnis's insistence on this nonsense. Through here, your grace, the nurse said. He opened the exam room's door and Honor glanced mischievously at La Follette, who returned her gaze stoically, then looked at the nurse. Thank you. Uh, would it be all right if my armsman stands in the hall here? She asked him. Quite all right, your grace, the nurse assured her. We're aware of the grace and security requirements. Good, she said, and smiled at La Follette. This shouldn't take too long, Andrew, she told him. Of course, if you'd like to, she gestured at the exam room, one eyebrow arched and treasured his long-suffering expression. That's all right, my lady. I'll be fine right here, he assured her. <laughs> yep. You can stay if you want. Oh, I'm good. Yeah. all right go ahead jp all right i have two we already covered another one that i was going to do in our discussion so the first one is honor contemplating what she's about to do the context is industrial warfare honor didn't respond for several seconds she was gazing into her plot her eyes picking out the icons of orbital factories extraction facilities power satellites warehouses by the standards of a wealthy star system like the Manticore home system, or of a major transportation node like one of the junction's termini, Hera's orbital and deep space facilities might seem sparse, but they still represented decades of investment. They were where people worked, what powered over half the star system's economy. They represented literally billions of dollars of investment and even more earning potential all in a star nation struggling doggedly to overcome more than a century of ongoing economic disaster. And she was here to destroy them, all of them. Mm. So we talked about industrial warfare and all that. Here's Honor contemplating what she's about to do. Is she shooting at something and blowing up a bunch of people? Not really. That's not what's going on here. She's going to wreck pieces of industry that could starve people. I mean, what a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And she's got to wrestle with that. And that's what we get to watch her do. The last one, the second one is honor considering the loss of so many of her armsmen. Why? And that leads to why we serve and the theme of service to uh, service Uh and love goes like this. Too many of her armsmen had died in the line of duty, protecting her back or simply caught in the crossfire of naval engagements. They would never have been anywhere near if not for her. At first, she'd felt almost angry at them because of the way their deaths weighed upon her sense of responsibility. But gradually, she'd come to understand it didn't really work that way. Yes, they'd died because they'd been her armsmen, but every one of them had been a volunteer. They'd served her because they'd chosen to, and they weren't content, and they were content. They were no more eager to die than anyone else. 
but they were as confident that they had given their service to someone worthy of them as Honor Harrington had been confident of the same thing the first day she met Elizabeth III face to face. And because they were, it wasn't her job to keep them alive. It was her job to be worthy of the service they'd chosen to give. That is such a good quote. That that was at one point was going to be one of mine. Well, what it were yours? I'm anxious powerful. to hear them. Mine yeah, that's actually a, go. That's a hard a one to lighter. read and not get misty eyed. By the way. Yep, and there's so much of that. Actually, my quotes tend to be a little on the lighter side, but accurate, and they're for the most part much shorter. The first one was on what was in the conversation where Allie learns of uh, what we shall call honor's delicate condition. I think the term is <laughs> where she says, now then honor Stephanie Harrington, Allison said, Harrington said sternly, what in the world has your panties in such a knot? I'm, I'm sorry. When Allie is a central character in the, the story, I've got to have an Allie quote. That, that's kind of become a, almost a tradition here. Okay. Honors delicate condition i never thought i'd see those words in one sentence together (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) so uh, a follow-up um and this is the this quote is the sole reason why i made sure to list uh scotty and horace in uh in the personnel list because, you know, service of love that this is an actually another aspect of that, that theme that JP has been bringing back to, because this really gets to it's offhand, it's flippant, it's banter, but what underlies it as far as what honors officers and enlisteds think, really think about her at the lower level. Well, chiefs, Captain Scotty Tremaine said, What do you think? Me, sir? Chief Warrant Officer Sir Horace Harkness shook his head. I think the rest of the Navy got itself reamed a new one while we were off at Marsh, and I think they expect us to do something about it now. Chief, that is so cynical of you. Captain Tremaine shook his head with a lopsided smile. No, sir, not cynical, just experienced. Look at it. Everywhere we've been with the old lady, we've kicked ass and taken names. And the minute those assholes working for Hyred send us off to the backyard of beyond, what happens? And who do they always send in to do the dirtiest jobs after it all hits the fan? The old lady. And us, of course, Harkness added with becoming modesty. <laughs> uh, here's another unexpected thing. Honor an old lady? <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> But it's definitely used in the context of a term of love and dear. What, what is she, 60 now? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Horace is older than she is, so. And she looks, what, 25? <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> Something like that. Certainly, ship's captain. Remember, I think we had a discussion many, many books ago about the term skipper mm-hmm. being a term of endearment. It's not a rank. Yeah. It's not, but right. a crew that that is fond of their captain will will go from calling Captain Jones, Captain Jones to calling Captain Jones skipper. And that's acceptable. It's not, uh, it's not considered, um, an impolite informality. It's, it's a, it's an affectionate term and captains that are the old man respected by their crews are not called skipper. Um, 
so it goes. There's a report card for the ship commander yeah. um, without having to get a formal report card. Old man, the old man or the old woman is is uh, is a similar construct. You hear people talk about the old man on a ship. They're usually referring to the captain. Um, sometimes you see it on senior staffs. Yeah. That the senior officer in charge, even if their staffs are, we called the old man or the mm-hmm. old. It's a, it's an endearing, it's a, it's an affectionate term, um, still considered professional. So now the fact is, and honor much has got term some of years respect. on her too. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Like there, there are old pilots and bold pilots, but there are no old bold pilots. <laughs> <laughs> so JP, what did did some, your uh, your underlings there? Uh, as you advanced, did they refer to you as the old man? They they did. In fact, I'm honored to say, well, yeah, when I was a squadron commander, I was the old man. Very cool. Pretty frequently, and and have served under people that I was I was very happy to call referred to as the old man. Uh, cool. So yeah, cool. Absolutely cool. Okay, another. I've got two more. One's a little longer. One's quite short. Uh, and this one is really needing something light, truly light. This is uh, honor finding out about some of the antics that or some of the goings on with the tree cat colony back on Grayson. Uh, it's a conversation, I believe, with uh, Miranda, I thought. No, it was, no, was it with Andrew? Might have been with Andrew and Miranda. But I think, it was, no, it was with Andrew. My favorite one, this is a, referring to some of the practical jokes that the tree cats, and also referring to uh, Nimitz's uh, tree cat name, laughs brightly. My favorite was the one with the stuffed tree cat and the cultivator. Stuffed tree cat? Honor's eyebrows arched and he chuckled again. They were using the robotic cultivators to trench for the new irrigation system, the armsman explained. So Nimitz and Farragut kidnapped one of the life-size stuffed tree cats from Faith's bedroom. They didn't, Honor began, dark eyes starting to laugh, and LaFollette nodded. Oh, but they did, my lady. They used those sharp little claws of theirs to disconnect the front and back ends, then burrowed down on either side of the trench and left the tail sticking up on one side and one poor pathetic true hand poking up on the other. The assistant gardener almost died on the spot when he found it. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. I can't, I can't make it through that passage without cracking up laughing. It's probably one of the funniest, it's probably one of the funniest excerpts in the whole dang series. What does Honor call, call Nimitz all the time? Stinker? Yeah. Hey, <laughs> for a reason. Yeah. Here's some, here's some stinkers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it also reminds me some of the pranks my son has pulled on uh, his mom, and we're not even going to go there. And last but not least, this is regarding uh, the piece where Eloise Pritchard had had found out uh, the truth behind Elizabeth's father, and she explains it to uh, Thomas Tiesman, and Tiesman's response my god tisman said they killed king roger because they expected elizabeth to be weaker he barked a harsh laugh well that little brainstorm certainly fixed up <laughs> yep yeah i laughed at that part yeah anyway so let's we we have gone 
ungodly long here, but it's been a blast. Uh, oh, it's been Jim, an 800-page book, it. too. So Yeah. You know. I'm going to pass this to you for some of uh, closing thoughts. Uh, this is a long but entertaining story. I, I hated to put it down, but I had to so I could get some rest every now and then. Uh, it was entertaining and at the same time exhausting for everything that was in it. This one is packed full of goodness. And it was uh, like there was a surprise with nearly every page turn. It made me sad. Spoiler alert. Uh, Mike appeared to be dead and happy to learn that she was only injured. But then later on, when I learned about the death of one of our most beloved characters, who was with us from the beginning, again, I shed a tear. It is amazing how David writes these characters so well, and they become real people to me. Now I'm looking forward to seeing how Zilwicky and Kasha's investigation goes to expose the real culprits behind the assassinations, and even more, what the Manticoran uh, reaction to uh, the this discovery is that the Havenites are not behind it. Uh, my takeaway is appearances are deceiving. Never draw conclusions until you have all the facts. Millions of lives could have been saved. Okay. All right. And uh, sending it over to you, JP. And no, I am not. Uh, I am not going to listen to the freaking audio books. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I know what you're referring to, Jim. The problem is, especially the earlier audiobooks, a lot of people, just so you guys have a context on this real quick, a lot of people get persnickety on whether it's pronounced Manticorin versus Manticorin. Yeah. And the early audiobooks actually mispronounce it as Manticorin, which is what started that whole mess on pronunciations to begin with. Yeah, I know. Nitpick. All right, over to you, JP. Hey, for the record, I'm pronouncing it both ways. Yep. <laughs> because it, it seems natural to me one way, and the other way seems to be the preferred way. And when I'm not thinking about what I'm how I'm pronouncing it, it comes out one way or the other. So there you have it. All right. This story, like you, Jim, kept me fully engaged. It was hard to put down, even though I mentioned a couple times where I, I had to set the book down because I just needed a breath. It, it felt like the book was a walk down memory lane in terms of all the events that it referenced. And we didn't really talk about that. There were a huge number of references to things we have read recently and read a while ago. And that had me wondering why, and maybe it ties to this mystery that we're waiting to see unfold. Uh, was it just pulling things together at this point, or are we being set up for something to come? So definitely, and thanks to this book, consider me intrigued and a little nervous. Oh, you should be nervous, my friend. You should be nervous. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Raul. You know, sometimes a victory is not a victory. And the price is so high. In this case, neither of the two star nations won, even though Manticore was, on paper, victorious. What happened here really has the sense that the real victory was Mesa in achieving the result that it desired. There is something much, much bigger going on. And 
it has been in motion since the very beginning of the series. Manpower Mesa comes off of uh, as a corporate entity. I'm going back to that question again. But why do they actually exercise their powers like a national polity yeah. instead? And we're going to start shifting strongly into that why. So it, it's... Buckle your seatbelts, I suppose. Buckle your seatbelts, yes. There, there's going to be some parts where things get a little slow. There's going to be parts where it, it's like Weber. Or what's take not time belt, setting shock stuff harnesses. up. <laughs> yeah, he, he will take his time setting things up the way he wants them set up. And then, bam. Yeah. And that's one of the fun things for me about, about it. So from here, gentlemen, what are your ratings? All right. I... <laughs> Big surprise here. I gave this five contraceptive implants. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Would those be failed implants or ones that work? Uh, no comment. <laughs> Expired implants? <laughs> or, uh, goodness. Well, JP. I'm going to give it five historic references. Though I think there were probably more than five. Yeah, but... I can only grade on a one to five scale. So getting five. <laughs> and for me, it's five Apollo missiles. All right. Sweet. So I've already done the math. And overall, this is this is really difficult stuff, right? Uh, we gave this five Apollo historic contraceptive missile implant references. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Sorry. No one else can ever claim that they did that. <laughs> you heard it here yep. on the Honorverse Today podcast. Okay, oh, yeah. We, we gave it five out of five. Uh, on Goodreads, it reports a 4.21 with 10,980 ratings. And Amazon is uh, higher at 4.7 with 2,315 ratings. You know what, Jim? Huh. What's amazing here? How much we didn't cover. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There is so much in this particular book. Yep. So you know what that means? Those folks out there that haven't read it, get get on it. Yep. Yep. Do it. Yeah. You'll, you'll thank us later. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, that's bringing us to the end of our show here. Uh, do we have any shout outs to any listeners? I think we'll go ahead and collapse that into next uh, episode because we have gone so incredibly long here. All right. So at any rate, I do have a shout out, and that would be, as always, we want to give our sincere thanks to Mr. Hank Davis and the TPE yeah. Network of Fun and Informative Podcasts. And on next up, we, have, uh, we will be reading Storm from the Shadows. Saganami Island, book two by David Weber. So let's see, J just, a, just as far as anticipation, Saganami Island series, uh, that means it probably involves the Talbot Cluster, which means we know from this book that Mike Hankey has been sent there. We know that Overstegen is with her. Uh, we know that Tarakov just came back from there. Mm -hmm. Oh, joy. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. So at any rate. <laughs> no spoilers at all there. We were. As the, this is nothing that wasn't said in the in this book itself. Yeah. 
All right, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Say goodnight, JP. Goodnight, JP. Good night, everybody. So long. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. Music